0: As you can see from the outline in your bulletin, we've entitled the message, The Blind Are Given Sight, Seeing Are Blinded. As I begin this morning with a message from the Word of God, listen as I read to you, basically, Psalm 27 and verse 10. to at the stage. In that passage of Scripture, we read these words. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me up. In our text, we are coming to the completion of the story that is well known to even those who do not read the Bible on a regular basis. It is the story of the man who was blind from his birth and then healed. At this stage, we have witnessed the miracle itself in chapter 9 as performed by the Lord Jesus Christ publicly. We have watched the investigation of the event by the religious leaders. And we have noted many things. Let me just rehearse this. Although the miracle itself was undeniable, no one could deny the miracle. It was too obvious. And although there was testimony to its reality and to what happened by the neighbors or the people around, By the man himself, and get this, by his parents who could not deny it, and, as we have seen in our studies, even by the religious leaders, they could not deny the miracle that had taken place. It nevertheless resulted in rejection. It's amazing. Everyone knew the miracle was true. And yet, there was rejection, astoundingly, by, first of all, his own parents. And, obviously, as we have been studying, by the religious leaders. Ultimately, though the miracle had taken place, because of the rejection, it had gotten to the place that the man who had been born blind And now, who had been physically healed, and all that evidence that had been presented where he even argued his case with the religious leaders, ultimately had been excommunicated from the synagogue. Astounding. He had been cast out. If you look at verse 22 of our text, it says his parents, in effect, in a context, they had denied not that he was their son, but Anything to do with a miracle. Why did they do that? Verse 22, his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. And I'm going to take advantage of a moment because I'm going to come back to this. Right here we see a situation where parents were so encumbered by their own religion, so encumbered by their own religion, that they were willing though they would have an affection toward their son, they were willing to cast all even common sense aside and the obvious aside to cling to something that was dead. That's what happened here. And because they were so afraid that they would lose their religion and be cast out of the synagogue, so as a result, their son, and as I said to the congregation when we went through that, can you imagine having a child born blind And all that they had to face and all of the scorn and all of the criticism and all of everything that went with that, and now he's an adult and sees, and now your own parents reject you because they're afraid of their own religion. And then they allow him to be cast out rather than them. You find that in verse 34. Because in verse 34, which leads to verse 35, as you can see, but in verse 34 it says, They answered him, this is the Jewish leaders, You who were born entirely in sins, are you teaching us? And as we have seen, absolutely. Because he had the right answer. But what did they do? So they put him out. This is not just out of the meeting. He was cast out of the synagogue in relationship to verse 22 and all that was going on. He was basically excommunicated. He had no privileges in the church organization anymore. Instead of celebrating with this man, Instead of rejoicing because of what God had done in this person's life, they let him be an outcast, and they cast him out. What a great event this should have been to them as a family. What a great event this should have been to all around, and yet this was not the case. And in coming back to it, I want to give you an application right as we set our stage to go into verse 35. This happens still today with salvation, and it's absolutely amazing. What do you mean? Children come along and they come to know Christ as Savior. And they maybe had some religion in their life or were brought up with some religion in their life. And that is true with all of us, by the way. There isn't a person in this room that probably didn't have some religious background or religious training. But they had it as a formality. They went through it. They did whatever. They did it out of obligation. And now they come where something really affects their life. It's salvation. And their life gets changed And what happens, rather than the family celebrating, rather than their friends, quote-unquote, celebrating, rather than those around them rejoicing that they've come to know Christ, they get rejected. If that happens to you, don't be afraid. You're in good company. And that does happen. Family rejects them. Why? You're rejecting their religion. You're rejecting, uh, in their mind, The idea of, oh no, now I can't be your friend because you can't do the things. Who said this? Who gave these people all these rules? I've seen situations where kids were involved in all kinds of things and the parents were worried about everything that was going on. They come to know Christ and now the parents think it's worse. That's unbelievable. And the parents look at the life and they see the change, they see the love, they see the difference in the family there is so much evidence around them that it's truly the hand of God and they're so afraid of what they were brought up with and losing it that they'll even stay away. They'll get involved to some degree, but that's it. That's what Christ can end up doing in a family because of our own stubbornness. And here you've got a situation with a tremendous miracle and there's a rejection by their own parents. Let me tell you something. That if that happens to you, you can be encouraged by the same thing here. While the religious leaders rejected them because they hung on to their religion, while their parents rejected them because they would tolerate Him, they wouldn't deny that He wasn't their son, they would tolerate Him to a degree, but they basically rejected Him because they didn't want to lose their religion, God came to their side. And God is always there for us. They were not, he was not rejected by God. And in fact, as we see in our text this morning, he will spend eternity with God. These Pharisees and Sadducees, and playing the game with their religion, will go to their grave and be away from God. What a tragedy. This leads us, all of this background, to our last section where we see the blind man and I'll go so far right now to say he's brought to salvation, as you will see. And it also expo- exposes, if you will, the blindness of even religious people right in the context. So let's look at the first part where the spiritual man is brought to life. The spiritual sight, as I have it there. That's verses 35 to 38. Let's jump right into it. And I start off by talking about its requirement. It's found in verse 35. You notice the parents have rejected. The religion has rejected them. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had been put out. He knows they've been put out. And what does he do? He seeks them. And it says in verse 35, and finding him, not them, but him, he finds the blind man. Can you imagine how this man felt? Let me just back up for a second. All his life, he's been begging. All his life, he could not see physically. All his life, he's been ridiculed by people. Now he can see. Imagine just that experience, color, see beauty, see people, uh, now associate with voices, and he's been brought up near the synagogue because that's where he's been begging with his religion, and now comes to say, "I I know this all about what's happened in my life, and now he's rejected again. I can't imagine how depressed this guy could have been. I know I would have been, that the miracles happened in my life, and now I have this situation, but Jesus seeks him out. And he says this strange thing to him in verse 35. Do you believe in the Son of Man? What is the requirement for salvation? What is the requirement for spiritual insight? It's right there. It is faith, plain and simple. It is belief. It is trust. We'll get to the content of the trust in just a moment. But we need to see this. This is a public setting, by the way. This isn't a private situation. How do you know that, Pastor Dan? Because by the time you get down to verse 40, just look ahead, you'll see that the Pharisees overhear the conversation. And they react by saying, are you saying that we're blind? So it's still in a public setting. He sought him out, but they are still there publicly. Jesus sought the man, and he says, do you believe? Notice what he didn't say to them. And I want you to catch this, because we need to grasp this today in 2010. The Lord Jesus Christ doesn't go up to him and say, how religious have you been? Did he? No. He didn't say to him, by the way, what church do you go to? That's what we would ask. Now you say, Pastor Dan, it's obvious. You know, he was a Jew. Yes? true. But he didn't ask him what synagogue he went to. He didn't go to him and say, what denomination do you belong to? Not at all. He didn't say, have you been naughty or nice? I'm keeping a Christmas list. Now, that sounds a little facetious, but I want you to see that because that is the way we think. That the concept of heaven or the concept of being right with God depends upon what church I go to. It depends upon what religion I've been brought up in. It depends upon whether I'm naughty or nice or whether the scale. Tonight, I'll be showing you some slides. One of the ones that I have on a slide is a scale because they still use them to balance things. And I was in a couple of churches, one in Turkey and one in Greece, both of which showed in their murals on the wall the concept of how you get into heaven is the scale where God takes your good works and outweighs the bad. I'm going to tell you something. If you're relying on that, you're in trouble. And I'll tell you why. Your good works do not outweigh your bad works. How bold of you to say that. Who do you think you are? You know what? I am not anybody, but God knows your heart. And if you've committed sin in your heart, you have enough uh, bad works that will outweigh any good work you could possibly perform. That's why salvation is That's why the issue is faith. Now, what does he say? He says, do you believe? But he doesn't leave it there. A lot of people believe a lot of different things. He says this strange thing. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Now, I don't know about you, but those of you that come here regularly, you know, I see something like this. I like to study. What, why? I, here's the questions I ask myself. Why didn't he say to him, don't you believe in Jesus? This is also for believers here today. That's the first thing that we do. Don't you believe in... He said, son of man. Why didn't he say to him, with all that we've seen in John, why didn't he say, don't you believe in the Messiah that he's coming? Why didn't he say this? And by the way, just to give you the help with this, there are many scholars who have changed the word of God because they... They cannot buy that he said Son of Man, and they think that he said Son of God, which the text in the Greek does not support. So they've changed it. And they say that he really said the Son of God. He didn't say that. He didn't say he believed in the Son of God. He said the Son of Man. Why not the Christ? Why? I think if we just look at John's Gospel, I'll keep it very simple with one verse exception. And watch how John used this. You'll see why Jesus said this. Just a couple of verses before this. I won't even go beyond this. Go back to John chapter 1. I want you to see how John used it. John chapter 1, verse 51. And I think you'll understand exactly why he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Earlier on in John chapter 1, he says, In the beginning was God, and God was the Word, and the Word was God. And then he goes on and says, The Word was made flesh. Okay? And by the time you come to the end of that chapter in verse 51, you read this. And I'm going to hit these verses quick. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heavens open and angels of God ascending and descending on this is Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. Go with me to chapter 3. I'm just going to bounce on him. Chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. He said, and this is with Nicodemus, a religious leader. He said, No one has, watch this ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, who's that? The Son of Man. The only one who has ever left heaven to come here to earth is the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, the Jews could relate to that, even so, watch this, must the Son of Man be lifted up. So he says only the Son of Man has left heaven. Only the Son of Man has come here and is God's representative in the flesh, and only the Son of Man is the one who is going to be lifted up on a cross. Go with me to chapter 5. Now we've studied this, and I want you to see it coming together. Chapter 5, verse 25 through 27. Truly, truly, I say to you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. You say, that's Son of God. Hold on. Those who hear will live. Why? For just as the Father has life in Himself, even so, has he given, to he gave, excuse me, to the son also to have life in himself, and he gave the authority to execute judgment because he is the what son of man. Okay, go with me to chapter six, verse twenty-seven. Chapter six, verse twenty-seven. So John's use is the one that's key to us. In verse twenty-seven, do not work for the food which perishes, but the food which endures. Watch this. To eternal life. Where does that come from? Which the Son of Man will give you. Why? For on Him the Father God has set His seal. Look at verse 53, same chapter. 53. He said this. He said, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat my flesh, the flesh of the Son of Man, and drink his blood, you have no life in yourself. Verse 62. All right? What does he say there? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Where was that? He already told us. Heaven. Chapter 8, verse 28. Last one. 8, verse 28. The Lord Jesus Christ has been teaching about the Son of Man. Verse 28. Jesus said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know what? That I am He, and I do nothing of my own initiative, but I speak things, these things as the Father taught me. And when you see how John has been using this, let me summarize it to you this, this way. Jesus has constantly been talking, and John's been associating the Son of Man Because that is the one person that has left heaven, has come to earth, taken on flesh. That was to be lifted up. And he talked about the work of the Son of Man. Not just in a general term, but this is the specific one that has been lifted up and will satisfy and can give eternal life. And the whole purpose of John's Gospel, according to chapter 20, as has been drilled into you, is that men might come to see that Jesus, that specific one, identified by God, identified with man. Why? Because he became flesh. His work is he had to be lifted up on the cross. That one is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you might have life through his name. Because it's the only place it comes. So the association with the term Son of Man is His coming from heaven, sent from God, approved by God, and His work in suffering as the Savior that can give life. Very simply put, I would give it to you this way, because the Gospels do. The Son of Man, as John is presenting it, is to make them realize that this Jesus, who the Pharisees are rejecting who religious and society is rejecting, is God in the flesh, the only satisfying sacrifice. And so he comes to this blind man who is now physically able to see and says, do you believe in him? The son of man, the one who left, the God of the universe who came and took on flesh, the one who has been lifted up, the one who is able to give life, Not the one of the Pharisees. And in case you might miss that, you don't need to turn. They knew what this meant because of Daniel. And in Daniel chapter 7, I will just read it to you. Listen carefully, though. They knew this from the Old Testament. Here's what it said about the Son of Man to show you I'm talking about God in the flesh. In the Old Testament, to prepare them, it says this, I keep looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him the Son of Man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples and the nations and every tongue might serve him. Who is that? The Son of Man. Who is that? Jesus Christ. And my friend, according to Philippians, one day every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess to the glory of God the Father that it is Jesus Christ who is Lord. You can do it now. I hope you will. But if you resist it, you will do it. Guaranteed. The authority of the Word of God. So he comes to him and shows him, which ties into your next, the next point on your outline, What the object of faith has to be. You see, you can have faith, but let's be honest. Let's back up a second, keep your ears open. People have faith today. All of us exercise general faith, even in trusting in that pew that's before you. But even when it comes to the concept of God, people have faith. A lot of people say, I believe God exists. A lot of people have faith in religion. And I know what that's like to have faith in the religion that you're growing up in. I don't care what religion you're growing up in. If you're growing up as a Jew, you're growing up as a Muslim. You're grow, You've grown up as a Roman Catholic. You're growing. Grown up as a Protestant. If you're placing your religion, your your faith in that religion, you're in trouble. Because religion's not the issue. Son of man. There are those who have faith rather than in religion. And by the way, if you're not aware of this in the, the day and age that you and I are living in. More and more, you watch your news carefully and listen. You know why? Because the world is getting fed up with religion, period. Any religion. They're fed up with it because of what religion has done. And it is to be blamed. But now what they're doing is they're turning to themselves. I have faith in me. By the way, I don't. And you shouldn't either. I have faith in my ancestors. I saw that when I was over in a foreign country. You've heard that through the recent missionaries that have been here. We have faith in good works and so forth. No. I want you to see that there's an eagerness among this man to believe. Watch it in verse 36. He answered and said this, Who is he, Lord? Why? That I might believe in him. He's ready. He's eager. Why? I personally believe, this is an application of verse 36. It doesn't say it, but you do see his eagerness. I personally believe that he was absolutely fed up with ritual. I absolutely believe he was fed up with formality. There is so much religion that is that way today. that is a formality. I have to do this a certain way, I have to do that a certain way. The church says, i got to do this. The church says, i got to do that. And you know what? We're a more educated society today, and people are good thinkers while we're accused of not being good thinkers, and they're able to look and say, I'm fed up with all of that. How do you know that's where he was? He just got cast out of the synagogue. He's been healed. Nobody can deny it. And the religion says, huh, you believe on Jesus? I don't know. I don't believe that, that he's a Christ that way out of the synagogue. And he's fed up with it. He's fed up with man-made laws and he has progressed. He's progressed in his faith already toward Jesus. How? Notice this quickly just in chapter 9. In verse 11, the first thing he says is this. Watch. Go back there. He answered, The man who was called Jesus made clay, anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went away, I washed, I received my sight. What did he say? I don't even know who this guy is. All I know is his name is called Jesus. That's where he was. Go to verse 17. By the time he gets questioned and so forth, you come to 17, he says, so they said to the blind man again, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? He said what? He's a prophet. Notice the progress. He's progressing. He says, this guy's got to be at least a prophet. Watch by the time you get to verse 33. You come to verse 33, which is just before our text this morning. If this man were what? Not from God. This man has progressed. He's gone beyond the attacks of everything else. And at first, he didn't even know who he was other than his name. Then he saw that he had to be a prophet because of what he's done. Now he says there's no way this could have happened unless it was from God. He's got more spiritual discernment than the religious leaders and his parents. No wonder we find... in You need to understand that. So when you come to verse 36 and he answers and says, you know, who is he said I can believe? He's ready. God has been working in this man's life. And he's now ready. And so Jesus now identifies him because this is where the object has to be. And in verse 37, Jesus says to him, you have both seen him and it is he, and he is the one who is talking with you. That is pretty bold. What happened? Jesus said, I'm the Son of Man. I'm the one that came from heaven. I'm the one that's going to be lifted up. I'm the one that gives life. I'm the one that gives light. He's been teaching that all the way through. And Jesus says, and this man for the first time is actually seeing him physically, by the way, if you follow it through. So what does he mean that when it says, "Have both seen him? He has seen him spiritually because of what I just walked you through. He has been seeing God work, so he's pondering the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, you've seen it. You've identified as a prophet. You've identified as coming from God. Now I want to bring it to culmination. And you know what you've seen? It is the one that's standing before you. I am the Messiah. That's what he was saying. I'm the Messiah. I'm the chosen one. I'm the fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7. I'm the one that God has promised to come. And so the object of his faith had to be placed in a person. You can have faith in yourself, in good works, whatever you want, your church, and it's all in the wrong place. The only faith that counts, which is intellect, is to be put in the right place. The right place is in the person that God sent, the Lord Jesus. Why does he have to be the object of our faith? Why did he have to be the object of his faith? Because Jesus Christ is the one that was sent from God. Jesus Christ is the only one that could satisfy the righteous payment for our sin. Why? Because He who knew no sin, not some sin, not one sin, but no sin became sin for us to satisfy the righteous judgment of a holy God. That sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, we benefit by but ultimately was to satisfy a righteous and a holy God that is why Adam and Eve got cast out of the presence because of their sin, and God is perfect and holy. How could that be restored by only one sacrifice forever by a righteous and holy one, who is the only way and the only name given among men, whereby we must be? I want you to notice something. Listen carefully, fellow believers. I want you to notice what doesn't go on here. Al didn't have any idea what my message was. But he said something that ties right in, right in my note. I want you to notice that Jesus Christ didn't say to him when he said, who is he, Lord, that I might believe? Jesus Christ doesn't turn around and say, you know what? you got to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and then you're going to have an easy life. Wouldn't you like to go to heaven? He doesn't even mention heaven. That is the way we approach the unsaved, usually. Wouldn't you like to go to heaven? Now, what person in their right mind is going to say, no, I want to go to hell. By the way, I kid about that. I've seen some people say that as a joke. Oh, yeah, all my friends are going to go. What a fool you are. You don't know what you're saying. You don't know what you're saying. But that's our approach. Uh, Sometimes people say, try Jesus. See if it works. What in the world is that? Jesus doesn't say, try me. He doesn't talk about heaven. He doesn't promise an easy life. And sometimes we misrepresent the gospel when we're presenting Christ because we want to make it palatable to them to receive it. Jesus doesn't make it palatable at all. In fact, the Pharisees want to get rid of him and kill him because he says, you're a sinner and I'm the only one that can get you to heaven. And they don't like it. And then he says the same thing with this man. He doesn't turn around and say, well, you know, if you want to get back into a relationship with your parents, as far as I know, scriptures don't reveal that his parents ever took him back. He doesn't even talk about an easy life. He just basically points out you need to believe on the Son of God. Why? Then you'll really see spiritually. Then you will have eternal life. He does not try to sell the product. I am absolutely appalled at today's Christianity that is convinced that you need to sell a product with the gospel. The gospel does it itself. Just proclaim the word of God. The word of God is powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. Paul said that I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it is the power of God that leads unto salvation. Just present the word and let God do the work. We simply water, and sow. God gives the increase. And there's too much Christianity that's causing confusion. I have even heard this said to me, and I have actually heard a person criticize me after a message when they said, you didn't have an invitation, you blew it. And I said, what do you mean? You didn't seal the deal. There is no deal. There's nothing to seal. Let Christ do it. Let God do it. This phoniness that's going around There's a lot of people that are professing Christ who haven't really come to Christ. How do you know when a person comes to Christ? Look at the next verse. Look what happens. The result is clear. The result is very clear. It says in verse 38, And he said to him, Lord, I believe. What did he mean? I believe that you are the Son of Man. I believe that you are the Messiah. I believe that you are the only way. How do you know all that, Pastor Dan? Because of what I've just demonstrated to you that Paul, I'm sorry, John, has been teaching throughout his gospel. It's been very clear. And he says to them, I believe it. And then what did he do? He worshiped him. He prostrated himself literally, that's what the word means. He prostrated himself at his feet. And I don't think the commentators are right when they turn around and say, well, he just prostrated. He bowed down like he would at anybody else. Nothing doing. He said, Lord, and I think there's every indication in the immediate context that he's recognizing that, yes, you are the Messiah, and I worship you. It's action. How does salvation work? God has to pursue. God has to open the heart. There's got to be the right information. There's got to be the challenge for faith. There's got to be the right object of the faith, Jesus Christ. And then you need to see how it works reason is not thrown out the window reason and faith work together because we have to have the right information we process it and this man had to come to believe yes did god give him the ability to believe yes but he still had to act on his own will to perform and that's what he says jesus christ said to him do you believe and he says yes i do and he worshiped it's not a mere profession. Profession will be seen, if it's real, by action, by follow-through. There's too many that are saying they're trusted in Christ and they go their way. And what you see here is a man that worshipped God. And that will follow. Why? Because you've been bought with a price. You belong to God. And I think, I know you that attend regularly have heard this many times, but I think one of the most frightening verses is Matthew. Because those are people that profess faith in Christ. They are professing Christians. Our world is saturated. If you've been born in the United States of America, it's assumed you're a Christian. If you go to other parts of the world, if you're not Muslim or you're not a Buddhist, you're a Christian. We've abused that term. The only ones that are true Christians are the ones who have trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation and Him alone. It's got nothing to do with church. It's got nothing to do with religion. And in that day, they're going to say, Lord, Lord, haven't we done miracles? Haven't we done this? Haven't we professed faith in your name? And he's going to say, I never knew. Depart from me. And where do they go? Into eternal damnation. While they were professing to be Christians. Because they followed good works, their own thinking, their own church, their own religion, rather than following the person and work of the true one sent from God. So to go forward, wrapping it up very quickly, Verses 39 to 41. In verse 39, notice what Jesus did here. In verse 39, he says, For judgment I came into this world, so that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. What a contrast. Let me put it to you this way, because time is going quickly. This is not a contradiction by any means to John chapter 3. by the Jesus said, I didn't come into the world to condemn the world. Finish the passage just for your own benefit. And you'll see that he goes on in chapter 3 and clearly shows that men love darkness rather than light. And the whole point is, he didn't come to judge, he came to save. But his coming to save causes men to make a judgment on who he is. And even in this case, and what he's basically saying is this. Everyone in this room right now, going to get a little squirmy here. Everyone in this room, starting with the one that's talking, is put on the spot to make a judgment about Jesus Christ. You either believe, not just that he came at Christmas, not just that he rose from the dead, but you either believe that He's the one true Messiah of God and that by faith in Him alone, Christ alone, period, in Christ alone, bring salvation or you don't. There is no in-between. Say maybe, but I believe that Christ came, but also that I must be good. And you don't accept Him the way God presented him. I believe that He's come into the world to die on the cross for sin, but now I have to follow my... Rules of my church or religion. You don't accept Christ the way He's presented Christ alone, through faith alone. And the person who worked Christ? And every one of us is forced, uh, forced to judge. And those that are professing to say that they know, if you want to mark it down in your notes, it's Romans chapter 1. We read a little bit in Corinthians this morning. Why? Because the wise man says, I know better. I don't know too many people in society that would walk around. There are some that would say they know better than God. But in effect, that's what they're saying. God says it's this way, but you know, with all the technology we got today, with all the education, I profess myself to be wise. Do you know that's what led to all the idolatry in the past? Do you know that that's what led to all of the myths that are around regarding pagan gods and so forth? Because man's own thinking. Not that we're not to think, we are to think but he's put it above God. It's a very common expression where those who have sight and say they have spiritual sight, such as the Pharisees, are really the blind ones. And I haven't got the time this morning, but in Matthew 13, he specifically points out how the Pharisees, which is what leads to 40 and 41, over and over and over again, said that they understood spiritual things. And they are basically referred to as the blind leading the blind while they were professing. So what about verse 40 and 41 on the spiritual blindness? I'll give it to you very quick. In those verses, though I won't do justice to it, the Pharisees knew what he was saying. And they said, and they were expecting a no answer. We are not blind, are we? And Jesus says to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. What do you mean? What sin? Well, to explain that to you, he's not talking about never having sinned. Just look at the rest of the verse and it explains it. But since you say, we see, your sin remains. What would take it away? If you saw that Jesus is the Messiah and you put your trust in Him, it's gone. Why? Because faith in Jesus Christ is the provision for God's salvation and the forgiveness of sin. But when you continue to profess that you know it and you get the right answers and it's different from God, you are basically a living, dead person a seeing blind person when it comes to spiritual things. So what is the requirement for spiritual blindness? Let me put it to you this way for time. Pride, religion, tradition, self-confidence that you're right as opposed to God. That's all it takes. What is the object of that faith? Either a church or yourself. Where it is, Even an atheist has to come to that. An atheist has to come to say, "My way is right, there is no God. What a shock he's in for, or she's in for. Because you know what? They will die, and they will face him, and they will find him. What is the result of those who remain in spiritual darkness, death, condemnation? What do you have to do? Nothing. Continue believing what you believe and not come to Christ. Just continue to resist like the parents did here. Like the Pharisees did here. And you will die with that and then stand before a holy righteous God who says, hey, I sent my son to die on the cross. He paid the sin. It's only acceptable through him. You had your faith in yourself, your religion, this, that, or the other thing. Depart from me, you who do iniquity. Don't let that happen. This is serious. And you can walk out of here today and say, well, that's just Pastor Dan's opinion. I challenge you with this. If you believe that that's so, you take the Word of God yourselves, not a rabbi, not a priest, not a minister, not a church, not anybody else. Take the Word of God and read it for yourselves and I guarantee you'll see the truth. What truth? In here you will find that there's only one way the person fellow believers we close don't forget how we started chapter 9 remember the disciples they saw the blind man and wanted to know who sinned we should be out in the streets seeing people not as blind beggars and all of that which is all true but as people who need, need the Savior they forgot to bring Savior to them or to bring them to the Savior we should be out as a testimony for Christ, seeing the people and their needs, bringing them to the Word of God, bringing them to where they can hear the Gospel so they can get saved, and not be so lost in our world that we can't even see our neighbors, we can't even see our fellow workers as those who need Christ. That ought to stir us up for work. Here without Christ, our prayers. Son of Man, Lord Jesus Christ, and you might have your blindness opened up just like this physically blind. Not only get physical sight, but spiritual insight, salvation. Our Father and God, I thank You and praise You for the Word of God. I thank You that it's sharp and powerful. Very convicting. Father, so much of Christianity is presenting the Gospel so it's palatable. Trying to sell a, a product when what they should be doing is bringing to the world good news of salvation simply because it's been presented by you. The world needs to hear that it's been sin. People need to hear that they're sinners. Help us not to shy away from them. All men have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But we thank you and praise you that in your love you sent your Son, the Son of Man. Yes, the Son of God. Yes, the Messiah. Yes, Jesus Christ. The only one. To this world. To pay the penalty and price. And satisfy your holy righteousness. We thank you that when he was on the cross, he said, it is finished. Salvation is now available. We pray as we preach the gospel, that you give boldness to Christians. To recognize others that are unsaved. To not be afraid of being cast out by family, by religion, or by anything else. But Father, to boldly stand for the things of God, knowing that you are there, you will comfort us, you will never forsake us, you will never leave us. And Father, as the gospel goes forth in power, we pray that you'd give it the increase, that we might see right here in our families and our friends, right here in this church, in this valley, people come to trust in Jesus Christ as you give increase to the word of God as it goes forth, not just from this pulpit, but from our individual lives. Pray for these.